Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. And for context, we'll start reading again at verse 12. But before we come to this word, let us remember this is the word of the Lord, the perfect, unerring, everlasting, forever settled in heaven word of God, which is powerful and able to bring life where there is death and strengthen the weak, those who have feeble knees, that we might live for Him. Let's remember that as we read this morning. Romans 8, 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him that we may also be glorified together. Amen. Father, again, we commit this time to You and ask that You would graciously open Your Word to our understanding and that You would, not only that, but transform us from within, Lord. That You would work in our hearts, that You would blow across our hearts, Father, and that You would walk in us and cause us to walk in Your way. Cause us to delight in You, Lord, for You are infinitely delightful. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your Spirit who leads us in truth. And thank You for the remnant, Your people, whom You have called out of the world and who will worship You forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, well, if you were with us last week, we were looking at verse 15, and we've been understanding, trying to understand what it means to be sons of God. This is a grace from the Lord that He would teach us and show us, evidence to us that we are in fact sons of God or children of God. This is the core of assurance. And that really is the whole point of this chapter Romans chapter 8, is to give the people of God assurance, a great assurance that we are His and that He is ours and that if that is true, we are assured eternal life. We are assured victory. We are assured peace forevermore. So it is important, it is incumbent on us to give ourselves to these things and to search the Scriptures insofar as we are able to know the things that would make for our assurance and our peace. Uh, last time, we spoke about this cry. This is one of the assurances that God has given all of His children. It is a new instinct, and it is called prayer. It is the ability for us in our hearts to cry out to the Lord. It may be audible it may not be audible to the physical ear, but every child of God cries out to Him in prayer, 
cries out to Him when they are in need, when they are in trouble, when they see Him and delight in Him. It's the cry of the Son for the Father, Daddy, Father. And that constant communion with the Lord is the cry of the child. The world does not know how to do this. They don't have this instinct in their heart. When they get into trouble and are in dire straits, they turn to themselves and they turn to others and they turn to systems of men for understanding and trying to figure out answers to their problems. But not so with the child of God. The child of God is one who ultimately turns to his father. We don't do it perfectly. We're sinners. But the instinct, this new ability that we have in our hearts is to cry out to him and seek him alone. And that itself is a wonderful evidence that you are a child of God. You've been born of him. His seed remains in you. This is a great privilege that we talked about, this crying. It's it's something that has come to us at the great cost of the death of the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, who cleanses us from every stain of sin and opens up heaven for us, opens up access to the very throne room of grace where we are able to come and speak to our Father, petition Him, ask Him, cry out to Him day or night. And it is also a wonderful privilege because this is the mechanism by which we are delivered from all our fears and all our troubles. Looking to the Lord. Calling on His name. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. Psalm 50, verse 15. So, children cry out is a unique, it is a unique privilege of the child. Today, we're going to look at another privilege of being children of God. I love this. Paul, in like a string of pearls, is just laying before us all of these wonderful assurances, these wonderful evidences that we belong to Him. Today, we're going to look at the notion of inheritance or heirship, what it means to be an heir of God. That's really the thrust of verse 17. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. So we want to look at several things. As I was thinking about this, I wanted to divide this into questions, a series of questions that we should be asking around this inheritance. And we're not going to get to all these questions this week. Um, I tried at first, and believe me, it was way too long. So we're going to break this up and see how the Lord does this. But um, I plan to just look at the first couple of questions with you today. Let me read the questions to you in total so you kind of know where we're going. The first is, who receives this inheritance? So we want to look at, first of all, the recipients of the inheritance and understand who they are. Secondly, we want to know, well, what is this inheritance? What is the description of the inheritance so that we have it clearly in our minds? Thirdly, a question that anyone might ask if they knew they were going to receive an inheritance is, how big is it? What's the size of this inheritance? What am I getting? Fourthly, the timing of the inheritance. When will we we receive this inheritance? Fifthly, can we ever lose this inheritance? 
We want to understand, is this a certain inheritance or is it subject to decay or to disappearing? And then sixthly, knowing these things, if you are in fact an heir, what should be the attitude of your heart? How should you live in response to the knowledge that you are an heir, an heir of God, and a joint heir with Christ? So those are the six questions I'd like to do with you. I think we're just going to do, in fact, I'm planning on just doing the first two today. Who is it who receives the inheritance, and how would we describe this inheritance so we can start to build an understanding in our minds of this glory that God is giving to us? Firstly, however, we need to consider one further confirmation which will answer the question, the first question, who receives the inheritance? And it's this. We must know for sure, for sure, and for certain that we are children, children of God. So look with me at verse 16. Verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This comes right on the heels of verse 15 and this cry, Abba, Father. So this is directly connected to the cry of verse 15, this bearing witness. And what is the bearing witness? Well, the word in the Greek is two words that are formed together, which is often the case with Greek words. They're compound. And if you understand the meaning of each of the parts, you understand the meaning of the whole. The first word is the word for martyr, martyr or witness, martireo. It means to bear witness to or to testify of It means to affirm that somebody has heard or experienced something, to uh, bear witness about something. The other word that's used is the word seen, which means together with, or sin, S-Y-N, together with. So it's to bear witness together with, or to also bear witness. We see this in Romans chapter 2, verse 15. The same word is used when Paul says, who show the work of the law written in their hearts. This is referring to the Gentiles. They don't have the law of God, the written law. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. So here we have two witnesses. One is the conscience of the individual, and one is the work of the law in the heart that's bearing witness to the individual. There's two witnesses. Paul also uses this word in Romans chapter 9. It's interesting, this word is used three times in the book of Romans alone. In Romans 9 verse 1, he says, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. So here's a similar idea. Paul is testifying to the truth, and the truth that he has a a true zeal and a love for his fellow Jewish kinsmen, his, his kinsmen after the flesh, that they would all be saved. He has this desire, and he's telling the truth. And to establish this, he says, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. There is a witness of the Holy Spirit together with His conscience and both together testify to the fact that He is telling the truth. He has a sincere desire for His Jewish brethren. So we have 
two examples where in both cases there are two witnesses. Both testify to a truth. And so what is Paul doing here in Romans 8.16 when he speaks of this witness of the Holy Spirit with our spirit that we are children of God? Well, what he's doing effectively is in legal terms, he's calling a second witness to the stand in order to substantiate his claim. His claim is what? That he is a child of God or that we are children of God. See, Paul could have said that his spirit bears witness in himself or to himself that he is saved. He could have just pointed to his own subjective experience in order to say that he is a child of God. And isn't that really the case with false religions and cults? Don't they all point to a subjective experience within themselves or a a burning in the bosom or something that they feel that would substantiate that they are a child of God? But what does the Scripture say concerning the way of a man? In Proverbs 14.12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is the way of death. You see, One witness, in fact, our own witness of ourselves is not enough to substantiate a truth, to substantiate a claim. In Jeremiah's day, the leadership of the people, the prophets, the priests, they were all speaking peace, peace to the people of Jerusalem, saying, no, the Lord will not judge us and bring us into captivity as Jeremiah was preaching. But Jeremiah says, they, referring to the leadership who speak these lies, have also healed the hurt of my people, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. You see, there is the subjective experience that people point to when they think something, but God has something else to say. What is it that God says? Well, in Jeremiah's day, it was, there is no peace. Every one of you from prophet to priest, all the leadership and everyone in between are corrupted. They're given to covetousness and they will be exiled to Babylon for 70 years. That judgment is pronounced upon them and it was carried out. You see, the way of the fool is that he thinks he's right in his own eyes. And Paul knows that. Paul knows that it's not sufficient to have your own opinion of yourself for a firm foundation of truth. So here Paul is pointing something wonderful out to us. Paul is pointing out that there is an objective witness, that is an outside witness, who is the Holy Spirit Himself, who dwells in our hearts, and He is witnessing, and our spirit is witnessing, to this truth that we are the children of God. There are two witnesses, and the second witness is God Himself. God Himself dwelling in you. He bears witness to this truth, and we bear witness to the same thing. Why is that important? Well, because in Mosaic law, in order to establish something important, you required not one, but two or three witnesses. Certainly in the case of the death penalty, 
Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. It was not sufficient for one witness because one witness might be lying. He might be trying to set up another person, and that person would be unlawfully put to death. So two or three were always required. The same thing for one brother bringing a false accusation against another brother. Two or three witnesses was required to establish the matter. We see the same principle actually in church discipline in Matthew chapter 18, don't we? Where it's not sufficient just for one to bring an indictment against another, but for two or three or the whole church to hear the matter before the person is disciplined. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Even Jesus himself appealed to this principle when he was speaking with the Pharisees in John chapter 8, establishing his own truthfulness, that he was in fact speaking the truth. And here's how he did it. He said in John eight seventeen, it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. So the second witness is always what establishes the truth. And wonderfully, in this case, the witness is divine. It is God Himself, the Holy Spirit, bearing witness to the truth that we are, in fact, children of God. And the tense that Paul uses here for this bearing witness is the present active. And as we've been learning, we learned this this morning in our Philippian study and in other places, it means to continually bear witness with our spirits. This is a work that the Spirit is doing constantly in the hearts of His children. It's an ongoing process where God is signaling to us that we are His children. And what is this linked to but verse 15, to this cry? To the cry. In other words, He Himself has put this new um, impulse in our hearts. That's His witness to us. And the fact that we cry out to Him in response is our witness to ourself that we are children of God. He's put the desire in us, the impulse in us. We actually carry it out. The two work together to establish the truth that we are children of God. Now, some teach that there is um, a second experience of the Holy Spirit after regeneration. So they believe that you can be born again, regenerated, but not have the Holy Spirit or not have the fullness of the Holy Spirit in what they describe as a baptism, which takes place usually at one particular point in time. And they, they speak about it as a, a blessing for some Christians that God gives them assurance of their salvation. He gives them this witness that happens at a point in time when, okay, now we know that we are children of God. That is not the sense of what is written here, though. And there are men that I respect who hold this position. I don't agree. The sense here is this is not a one-time act. This is not a special privilege for some Christians and not others. This is a continual witness of the Spirit of God in the hearts of all His people to know that we belong to Him. This is a grace of God. Loved ones, He wants you to know what is already true of you. He's spelling it out for us in His Word. This is what I've done for you in salvation. 
And He says it to us many times and in many ways, patiently working with us, bringing this knowledge to our truth and to our conviction that we might know these things, be assured of these things, and live in rock-solid assurance in the light of these things. Hmm. Now, one question I asked as I was thinking about this is, God is bearing witness, in addition to our spirits bearing witness, Why does God do this? I mean, does He need to bear witness for His own benefit? Of course not. The Lord knows all things. He knows the beginning from the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. But for this reason, nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity, from their sin. God is not confused about who His children are. He knows all His children. He's written your names in the Lamb's book of life even before the world was created or time was created. But He's helping us to understand that we belong to Him. This is for our benefit. This is for our assurance. That's really the whole point, again, of Romans chapter 8. So what is happening here? The Spirit of God is testifying to us that we are children of God We are testifying to ourselves that we are children of God by the response of crying out to Him. But that's not the only witness of the Spirit. If you've been tracking with this whole section in Romans 8, haven't there been multiple testifications or um, declarations that we belong to Him? I mean, if you just back up from where we are in verse 16 to 15 and 14 and go back, All the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are those who uh, are actively killing their sin. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are those who have life given to their mortal bodies so that they live a new life, a holy life, pursuing righteousness and no longer sin. Those who are sons of God and led by God are those who seek to be subject to the law of God and to please the Lord because we have the mind of Christ now. We set our minds regularly on the things of the Spirit. We love the Word of God. It's a delight for us to meditate on the Word of God because we have a new heart He's given us. He's given us a love for Himself and for His Word. We walk now. That speaks to the new pattern of our lives. We We walk as the pattern in holiness, in newness of life, not in the oldness of our dead lives. All of these are testimonies that the Spirit is bearing toward us, and we are bearing as well as we live these out so that we would have great confidence, both witnesses establishing the matter. A young man once asked me, I say young man, I mean someone who is a little bit younger than me, so maybe not that young. Um, He asked, is it enough, speaking of salvation and assurance of salvation, is it enough to be orthodox in my understanding? If I believe all the right things, does that mean that I'm saved? And when you look at a text like Romans 8.16, the answer is no. It's not enough just to be orthodox and to believe all the right things. There is a witness of the Spirit of God Himself that 
with our spirits, together with our spirits, that we belong to Him. I mean, do you have to convince a child of the voice of his father? The child knows the voice of his father. He just knows. There's an instinct that God has put in him to know this is my dad. And so it is with the child of God. We know the voice of our father. We love his voice. We hear his voice because we are of God. We must believe the right things. We will believe the right things. And we grow in our understandings of those right things, don't we? But there's a transformation of life that must take place. A new life. A a new birth that has to occur. And a new set of loves and desires that must manifest in your heart for you to truly be assured that you are a child of God. Okay. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I want you to notice this is a present tense. We are the children now. We're not just going to be children someday in the future or if we keep God's law and obey certain works. No, He's saying you are the children of God now if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And we know all the evidences of that. We've been talking about it. We are children now. Listen to how John puts this in 1 John 3, 1 and 2. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us. That's a word for intimate knowledge. They don't really understand who we are. Because it did not know Him. It did not understand Him, Christ. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We are children now, and yet our sonship is going to be unfolded to us in a new way at the end when we are glorified. Our bodies are going to be changed. We're going to be like Him. And then the fullness of the adoption of sons will be known by all. It will be manifest. All creation will witness it. But know for certain that you are a child of God now, if in fact you are in Christ and His Spirit dwells in you. This is a great cause for rejoicing, isn't it? I mean, the Lord saves us. He adopts us. That alone is a wonderful concept. He adopts us. He takes His enemies. He he takes those who are haters of God and He brings them into the family of God. Gives them the names of sons clothes them with his own clothing, gives them every spiritual blessing conceivable. What manner of love is this that the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God? Now, verse 17, and if children, he builds the argument now, then heirs. Actually, the way that it reads in the Greek is not so much a conditional if, but since children, we've already established, your children, your sons of God, than heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Now, how do we know we're children? We just talked about that. We know that we're children. We're no longer slaves of sin. We're no longer enemies of God. We are dear children who love our Father. And if we're children, then all children are heirs. Now, what is an heir? An heir is somebody who inherits It's somebody who receives, 
typically from the father or a father, money, property, title, at the death of the father, the previous holder. So this word that Paul uses here for heirs is a word that means one who receives by lot. One who receives or has acquired a portion allotted to him, given to him. Now what's interesting is this is another compound word. This is two words, kleros and nomos. You know nomos, that's the word for law. We've heard that many times in our study of Romans so far. But this word for kleros is the word that is referring to an object that was used in casting or drawing lots. Sometimes it was a little pebble, sometimes it was a potsherd, sometimes it was a stick. And it's seen that you would cast the the lot and by chance the result would be determined. Uh, This was the word that was used of the soldiers who cast lots for Jesus' garments when they crucified Him. They cast lots. This is also the word that Peter uses in Acts chapter 1 concerning Judas, who was given a portion, a part of the apostleship, right? Judas, before he fell. If you look with me at Acts 1.17, he says, For he, referring to Judas, was numbered with us and obtained a part. That's the word kledos, the portion, the lot in this ministry. And then he talks about how Judas fell headlong because he betrayed the Lord. And it was determined of him that he would be the son of perdition. We know that. And then in verse 20, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it. And let another take his office. Hmm. And then verse 23, And they proposed to... They proposed to Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. These were men who were eyewitnesses of the Lord's resurrection, which was a requirement for being an apostle. Verse 24, and they prayed and said, You, O Lord, know, excuse me, you, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So I want you to notice here, there seems to be a random element to the casting of lots. They propose two, and then they leave it up to the Lord. Lord, you decide which of these two is to be the man who takes Judas' place. But of course, there is no random element at all because it's the Lord himself who decides. And Matthias is the one who is selected divinely. So that's why Paul adds this second word in the compound word for heirs. It is the casting of lots, but it is by a law, nomos, by a rule. He's establishing that the casting of lots is divinely appointed. That's the idea of the heir or the inheritance from a scriptural perspective. It's a portion allotted to somebody divinely. Its focus is on what is given to the Son rather than what is earned. A wonderful picture of salvation. Just this one word alone. To be an heir is to be one who receives God's favor. We don't earn God's favor. We don't work for God's favor. 
We simply receive it with open hands. So heirs are those who receive by the Father His possessions by His own sovereign decree, His divine lot. And that is really the idea here. Paul is using legal language, just as he has before when he was speaking of the adoption of sons. Adoption is legal language, whereby a son is declared to be a son who is not one naturally born to that family. Here he's using legal language. The heir is one who is granted by God an inheritance that he doesn't deserve. Hmm. And anytime we're speaking about an heir, it presupposes a couple of other things. It presupposes, because this is a legal idea, a testator. The testator is the one who writes the will, the one who is bestowing the goods, and it supposes an inheritance. So who's the testator here? Well, he says heirs of God. You are heirs of God. If you're children, then heirs, heirs of God. God is the testator. He is the one who bequeaths, who gives the inheritance to His children. So we know in the first place who the recipients of the inheritance are. They are children, true children. Secondly, we want to understand what is the description of this inheritance? What does this look like so we can have it in our minds? Well, the... Before I even start with this, there's so much that can be said about this topic that there's no way that I could exhaust this for you. I'm going to give you what I hope to be something that whets your appetite and encourages you to do your own study and to come to your own convictions about these things. But let me tell you just in starting here that this inheritance is described in several ways in the Scripture. It's described as a kingdom. It's described as the earth. It's described as a family, the family of God. It's described as salvation. It's described as eternal life. All of these are ways of thinking about the inheritance, but I would like to show it to you today through the lens of the promise. The promise. And I suppose the most embryonic form of this promise we have in Genesis chapter 3 at the creation And really, after the fall of Adam and Eve, when they chose to listen to the voice of the serpent rather than the voice of God, and God pronounces His judgments upon each of them. And His judgment to the serpent is this in Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity, that is strife or hatred, between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So there we have the idea of a seed, and we have the idea of blessing, don't we? The blessing that the seed of the woman would ultimately crush the head of the serpent, but it's an embryonic form. There's not a lot of clarity about how that promise will be brought to pass. And when we get to Genesis chapter 12, we have a lot more clarity about this promise as God shows it to us as He gives it to Abram. In in Genesis chapter 12, look with me at the beginning of the chapter. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, 
and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here we have a reiteration of the seed God is promising to make of Abram, Abram at this time, before he's renamed Abraham, a great nation. That is the seed, children. And he speaks of the blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But we have this further promise of land that he gives us in Genesis 12, verse 1. And these promises, or the promise that includes these three components of land, seed, and blessing, is repeated in Genesis multiple times. In fact, God first shows it to Abram that he is going to do this by way of a ceremony where he confirms the covenant to him. You remember in Genesis chapter 15 how God puts Abram to sleep and then uh, as the sun is going down, and once the sun has gone down, God appears as a torch in a smoking oven and he passes between the pieces of two uh, of animals that have been cut in two and placed on either side of a path. And God alone passes through those animals to ratify, to guarantee this covenant, and he does it unilaterally by himself. Abram is put to sleep. He does not pass through the pieces. But God himself does to say, if I don't keep my promise to you, Abram, then let what happened to these animals and their death happen to me. It was a way of confirming the promise. I am not lying to you. I will confirm my oath. And then we see that this promise is repeated. Um, it's actually described first as an everlasting covenant in Genesis chapter 17. In other words, every component of the promise will endure forever. And Psalm 105 really picks up on this theme. This was our corporate reading this morning. Psalm 105, just listen to verse 8 through 10 again. He, God, remembers his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham, and his oath to Isaac, and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance when they, when they were few in number, indeed very few, and strangers in it. This is a promise that God has made that will last, he says, for a thousand generations. Don't get caught up on that particular number. That number is the number of immensity in Scripture. That was the largest number that was used in commonplace. And so he's saying forever. For all generations, this is a covenant that will endure. It is everlasting. And God gives this covenant not only to Abraham, but as you heard, also to Isaac, his son, and to Jacob. It's very interesting that the promise does not go to all of Abraham's children. It doesn't go to Ishmael. It goes to Isaac. And then it comes to Jacob and not Esau. And so it travels throughout history the children of promise receive these promises and not just the children of the flesh. And then as the Old Testament unfolds, we see God's fulfillment of each of these promises in Israel's history, don't we? The promise of the seed God fulfills from Jacob. Jacob, who becomes the father of the twelve patriarchs, who sell their brother Joseph into slavery in Egypt. And it's there where 
Joseph suffers unjustly, but the Lord shows him great favor and raises him uh, to be the governor over all Egypt and over Pharaoh's house. And then the Lord brings a great famine upon the land of Canaan and Egypt in order to bring Jacob's descendants into Egypt to spare them from death. So that Joseph, the little brother, would sell them food and they would survive. And it's in Pharaoh's household in Egypt where they settle and they begin to multiply. And it's through their enslavement that God multiplies them and blesses them and fulfills this promise that they should become as numerous as the stars of the sky, the sand on the seashore, and the dust of the earth. They come into Egypt as 70 persons, and by the time they come out 400 years later, they are 600,000 men alone, let alone women and children. There are over a million people, a great company that the Lord leads through Moses. And so he does fulfill his promise of the seed. And then he fulfills the land and the blessing promises as well. He brings them into the land of Canaan, doesn't he? And he drives out their enemies one by one. Not perfectly because they sin. They don't always trust the Lord. In fact, there is a whole generation that falls in the wilderness because they will not believe the Lord. Their hearts are hard. And God causes them to die in the wilderness and they never make it to the promised land. But for those who trust the Lord, He continues to fight for them. And eventually, He brings them in, teaching them that the Lord God is the true captain of their salvation, the one who fights for Israel. And Israel takes possession of a land that they did not build, that they did not dig, that they did not plant And they enjoy the fullness of the land, the fruitfulness of the land, all by God's grace because all things belong to the Lord and the land is His to whom He wants to give it. I just want to show you from Joshua chapter 21 that this promise, these promises of the land and of the blessing were absolutely fulfilled in Joshua's day. Joshua chapter 21, listen to verse 43. So the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which He had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave them rest all around, according to all that He had sworn to their fathers, and not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand, Notice verse 45, not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. See, God is faithful to complete His promises. He promised the seed. He fulfills the seed. He promised the land. He gave them the land. He apportioned it to the twelve tribes. And they dwelt in the land. And He gives them great blessing as He turns their enemies away from them so that they can dwell in the land in peace. Hmm. But the physical land, the physical seed, the physical blessing were not the ultimate fulfillment of the promises given to Abraham or that embryonic promise that we saw in Genesis 3.15. You say, how do you know? Well, Israel didn't stay in peace in the land. They were driven out because of their idolatry and their disobedience. 
And they have been dispersed among the nations, and they have never been reconstituted again as they were. I also want to show you this from the book of Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. There's a discussion here from the author of Hebrews regarding the land. It's very interesting how he speaks of the land. Toward the end of chapter 3, he's referring in verse 15 to the wilderness days when that first generation were hardened in their heart and they were not believing in the Lord. It said in verse 15 of chapter 3, Hebrews, While it is said today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. He's using that generation as an illustration, as an example of unbelief so that all who are brethren, believers in the Lord, would truly believe. Verse 16, For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with them he was, with whom, excuse me, now with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. Who's the them? That's Israel in the wilderness. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed, notice this, do enter that rest as he has said, So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. So what is the author of Hebrews doing here? But he is showing that the promise of the land was not a completed promise. The promise of bringing Israel into the land was not the final, the finality of that promise. There remains yet a rest for the people of God. Why? Because the land only represented rest with God. It only represented rest from all their enemies and an entering into true prosperity and satisfaction with the Lord. You see, unbelieving Israel could not enter into God's land. Why? Because His wrath was on them because of their unbelief. But the promise of entering this land, quote-unquote, still remains for those who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who believe, or for those who believe, guess what? There is no wrath. This brings us back to Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation, no wrath for those, for all those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So this is the real issue. The land was only a symbol of entering into the Lord's true rest, or what you might call the Sabbath, which was a type. It's a spiritual land, the place where His wrath is turned away from us permanently. And you appropriate that by faith. When you believe, you enter into this land, this true rest that the physical land was only meaning to point to. 
That's why there still remains a rest for the people of God. And then the author to the Hebrews drives this home in verses 4 through 10 of Hebrews 4, where he makes this parallel. Let me just read it for you. He says, For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, that's the Sabbath, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David today, after such a long time, as it has been said, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. Do you see the grace of the Lord here? The Lord's grace on display in Moses' day, calling the people to believe the Lord and live. The grace of the Lord in David's day, calling the people to the same thing. Remember Israel and their rebellion. Don't be like them. Don't harden your hearts like them. And then even to us in our day. What day is this? The day of salvation for all who have ears to hear. If Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest, that is God's rest, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. You see the argument? It's a very wonderful argument. The author is saying, look, those who cease from their own works and just believe God's works enter into the true rest just as God rested from his own works on the seventh day. You need to cease from your own works. That's just another way of saying stop trusting in yourself. Stop trusting in your self-righteousness. Stop trusting in all the things that make for your pride and for your self-confidence. Discard all of those things as rubbish and refuse, just like the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, that I may gain Christ. Let me trade all those things for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the true treasure. That's the inheritance. The promise of the land was fulfilled physically and is being fulfilled today spiritually. And loved ones, just a little preview on next time, Lord willing, is going to be fulfilled in all its fullness one day in the new heaven and the new earth. What is a spiritual fulfillment today will become sight for all of us by God's grace when he creates all things new. When we are entirely saved, spirit and body, and even this earth is going to be remade. It's incredible. I want to share also Hebrews chapter 11 just to, so you're clear, so we're all clear in our minds about these promises and the fulfillment of these promises. This gives us great insight about the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they're thinking on these promises because these were men of faith. These, these were people who believed God. Look at um, verse 8 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive, which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, in other words, not a homeland. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. 
For he, Abraham, waited for the city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. That tells you right there, he knew that the physical city, the physical earth was not the fulfillment of the promise. He was waiting for a city whose maker was God, a heavenly city. Look at verse 13. These all, referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, died in faith, not having received the promises. That's interesting because in chapter 6, we were told that Abraham received the promise of the seed in Isaac, but even he was not the fulfillment of that promise. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. That's where their eyes were. That's where all of our eyes need to go, loved ones. This earth is not our home. This earth, we're told in 2 Peter 3, is going to be destroyed by fire. The elements themselves will dissolve with a great heat. The future is not on this earth. Our future is in heaven immediately and then on an earth yet to be made, a new heaven and a new earth. That's the focus of the Christian. Hmm. So what I'm trying to share is that each of these promises, the land, the seed, the blessing, they all had a physical fulfillment, but they all have a spiritual counterpart to which the physical pointed. They pointed. The physical land pointed to a spiritual land, a place of true Sabbath rest where God's people enter in by faith in Him, by ceasing from their own works and their trust in themselves and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ where alone His wrath is able to be turned away from us. And we have no more enemies with God. His wrath He's driven away. We come in and we now have fellowship with Him we have peace with God, a cleansed conscience from all our dead works so that we can serve Him. And the seed, well, the seed we clearly see proliferated in Egypt with physical descendants, but that promise also speaks of a spiritual seed. The promise to Abraham in Genesis 17, 7 was, I will establish my covenant between me and you, God speaking, and your descendants after you, notice this, in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Who are Abraham's descendants in their generations? We get an answer to that in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, Paul himself says this in verse 26. Galatians 3, 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's not speaking of water baptism. That's speaking of the supernatural immersion, the grafting, the union that the Holy Spirit has brought us into when He united us with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. Now notice this. So here's the argument. Your sons by faith in Christ, that makes you in Christ. You're now in Christ 
And if you are in Christ, verse 29, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You see that? So the descendants in their generations that God promised in Genesis 17 are each one of you who have faith in Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and who have entered into that spiritual rest. You are Abraham's children. Paul's going to develop this more in Romans chapter 9 where he makes a distinction of the children of God not being children of the flesh, but being children of the promise. Children of the promise. And it's not just from the Jewish nation. It includes from the Jewish nation, ethnic Israel. But it also extends, thank God, to the Gentiles, to us. I want you to hear how this plays out in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 was our call to worship this morning. Paul says this in verse 11, Remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, in other words, the Jews, ethnic, would have regarded you as non-Jewish, as Gentiles, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens. Notice this, from the commonwealth of Israel. That word commonwealth means citizenship. You had no part. You were not a citizen of Israel. You were strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. It's a dismal picture, hopeless picture. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Guess what that means in terms of your citizenship? You're now citizens of the true Israel. You share in the commonwealth of Israel. That's his point. The Jews and the Gentiles have been brought together as one new man. That's the mystery which has been hidden from ages past, which has now been revealed in Christ. And he, Paul develops that in, in Ephesians chapter 3, as we've learned with the study with Pastor Stan. Um, it's a wonderful mystery, verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. This is Ephesians 3, 6 that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel. And the gospel, we know, is the power of God to save everyone who believes, whether he's a Jew or a Gentile. doesn't matter. If you have faith in Christ, you belong to the family of God. You are that true seed of Abraham in their generations whom God is manifesting. It's wonderful. And so we have the spiritual land, we have the spiritual seed, and then we have the spiritual blessing. You remember God's promise to Abraham was that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, not just the Jewish nation. Well, how does that happen? We know it's by faith in Christ. We just read that in Galatians 3. By faith in Christ, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. What's the blessing? Brothers and sisters, it's the central theme of the book of Romans that we've been discussing for the last two years. Justification. Justification by faith in Christ alone, which is an act of God's grace alone, is the blessing. Right standing with God. His wrath that was on us, the, the wrath from heaven that's been revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, which was on us, He Himself has turned aside in our justification, by taking our sins and placing them on His Son. 
and taking His Son's righteousness and placing it on us, treating us as if we had never sinned, seeing us in His Son as the Beloved, fully accepted because of the sacrificial work of Christ, the great love of God on display. Justification is the blessing. You see, it's not just that God promised to drive out Israel's physical enemies in their day, which He did, but it's the bigger promise that God Himself would no longer be against us, but for us. For us. That's the central idea of justification. Listen to how Paul puts this in Romans 8.31. What shall we say then to these things? God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And then he starts this question that he takes into the rest of the chapter. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Brethren, we are justified by His grace through faith in Christ. That is the greatest blessing of all because He's turned away His wrath. No one can condemn us because He Himself has justified us. He's declared us right in His sight forever, permanently, a one-time legal declaration that will never, um, never end. And because of that, we have been brought into the presence of the eternally blessed one. Where David says in Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the true blessing is we get God. We've been brought into his presence. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Paul says wonderfully in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Loved ones, the true blessing of God is a spiritual blessing. It is not material for this world. It's a spiritual blessing. That's what he guarantees. There will be a material blessing that comes in the future, but it's not in this life. One more from the author of the Hebrews that really synthesizes a lot of this really well, I think, in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, just think about the land, the seed, and the blessing again. And the author says this in Hebrews 12, 18, you've not come to the mountain. This is speaking to Christian people, to the beloved, to believing Jews in this case. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. He's talking about the children of Israel being brought to Mount Sinai where they were in great fear because God's presence was there. Holy God in the presence of sinful men. And God gave His law thundering from Sinai. That was a terrifying sight. So terrifying in verse 21 that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. You've not come to Mount Sinai or to the law which condemns you if you stand before God in your own righteousness trying to seek justification on your own. 
You've not come there. Where have you come? Verse 22, you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So wonderful. You have come to the heavenly city that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were expecting and were looking for. You have come there, loved ones. Not just you're going there, but you have come there now. This promise is being fulfilled now by belief in Christ, by faith in Him. And notice this. Here's the land. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. There's the land. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. That's all of us. That's the seed. To God, the judge of all. To the spirits of just men made perfect. There's the blessing. Justification. And then he describes it. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And to the blood of sprinkling. That is the blood of Christ which cleanses us from all sin. So that God can declare us right, justified, That's the blessing. Land, seed, blessing, spiritually fulfilled for all in Christ now. Now. So I hope you're hearing there is a now component to the promises that is being fulfilled, and there is also a future component. This is not all future. There's a now component, and I want you to glory in that. We're going to develop this more next time as we continue through this, but Loved ones, think about this. This land is the place of rest where you've come in your spirits with a knowledge that your sins are forgiven. You have a clear conscience. You can serve God. You no longer have to work for favor with God. That's been done in Christ. You've entered into his Sabbath. The seed, all those who believe the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, those and those alone are the true children of God, the Israel of God. The people of God, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2. There's one people. Jews and Gentiles brought together in Christ by His blood. And then blessing. Justification. Right standing with God, which opens up every other spiritual blessing in Christ. And we saw many of those blessings when we went through Romans chapter 5, didn't we? Peace with God. Standing with God. standing, Firm standing in His grace. Such that we can never be removed rejoicing in hope of the glory of God, of that which is to come, the life to come, that we will see Him face to face and that we ourselves will be glorified, rejoicing even in tribulation, in hardship, in suffering. That's also where He's going to go in Romans 8, in Romans eight seventeen. If we suffer with Him, that's the mark of the Christian. There's no path to glory except through suffering, and we're going to learn about that. And then rejoicing in God alone, delighting in Him. All of these are the blessings of God that justification opens up for us. This is the promise that was given in the garden, repeated to God's people, and now is being realized by the church. So wonderful. I hope you are rejoicing in the Lord this morning, and I hope that you know that you're in Christ this morning. I hope that this exercise of knowing that you are a child, that you are led by the Spirit, that you are um, Uh, crying out to the Lord, that your minds are being drawn to Him continually, that your desire is to 
do the law of God and you actually are obeying God's law as the pattern of your life is all true of you. And if that's true, know for certain you're an heir. You are an inheritor. There's a gloriousness to the inheritance now and there's a greater, a far greater glory of the inheritance that is yet to be revealed. A lot more next time on that, Lord willing. Let's, let's go before the Lord again in prayer and ask for His blessing that He would apply this word to our hearts. Father, thank You so much for Your blessed Word and for Your blessed Holy Spirit who speaks the truth, who convinces us of what is right, who points to Jesus Christ always, to His veracity, to His truthfulness, to His faithfulness, and convinces us that He is the way, the truth, and the life, that there is no access to You apart from through Him. Father, thank You for showing us a glimpse of what You've done for us in Christ, an eternal purpose which You have executed in space and time by sending Your Son, and then simply evidencing to us, Lord, what is already true of us, showing us that we belong, that we might know You are the great Deliverer, that we were blind, that we were lepers, that we were paralyzed, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. All of those pictures of those who are without hope, strangers from the covenants of promise, hopeless. And yet, Lord, with you, nothing is impossible. You have brought us near. From all the nations, all tribes, all tongues, all peoples of this earth, that we might worship the King, that we might know that you are the great promise You are the great inheritance. Help us to delight in You, Lord, to see You as more valuable than anything else in our lives and to pursue You as that one who sold his possessions to buy that field for the pearl of great price. Thank You, Lord, for the children of God. Thank You for this family You've given us here at Creekside and at every other gospel-preaching church in this valley. We pray for them this morning as well, Lord. May the people of God be strengthened to serve the Lord, and may you receive all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.